This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversations. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Sherry Mills. She is the prayer director at Simmons College in Louisville, Kentucky, and the founder of One Voice Prayer Movement. She has served at uh, St. Stephen's Baptist Church for over 27 years, a CBF partner church. Sherry, thank you for joining the conversation. Yes, it's an honor to be here, so thank you for having me. Well, uh, you know, for those that aren't familiar with your story, um, tell us a little bit more about you. Okay, well, um, I've um, been working in ministry at St. Stephen Baptist Church under the leadership of Dr. Kevin Cosby for approximately 27 years. And um, in that time, um, I have founded uh, a prayer movement uh, called One Voice Prayer Movement. It is an interdenominational prayer movement, interracial, interdenominational prayer movement. And 
for the, uh, it's been in existence for 11 years. We celebrated our 11th year anniversary this past November. And uh, our hearts cried to God has been for justice over these 11 years. So uh, the Lord has uh, certainly put into my heart a passion for justice, a passion for reconciliation, uh, and a, a passion uh, to do kingdom work. So, um, and I would like to say I'm, I'm, I'm a proud student of uh, BSK Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, and I'm, I am working on my Master of Divinity. And um, so I consider that an honor and uh, to be on this podcast specifically with that connection. Well, one of the projects you've had your hand in uh, is the Angela Project. You know, for those that aren't familiar with it, what is the Angela Project? Uh, the Angela Project, um, that was a vision of Dr. Kevin Cosby, and it brought together um, s- uh, several denominations. It brought together the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, it brought together the National Baptist Convention of America, and the Progressive National Baptist Convention of America. And, and basically, it was to really reintroduce the church back to its roots of racial justice. And so that's it in a, in a nutshell, but um, it was, uh, it began uh, three years prior to the, uh, 2019, so that would be 2016, and leading up to the 400th year commemoration of Black enslavement in America. So that was um, three years that this prophetic leader, you know, uh, this was before uh, it was popular to speak about reparations and it was popular to speak about racial justice. Uh, but he, um, I'm speaking of Dr. Cosby, had the vision and the foresight to know the importance of this time, of this hour. And, and I would say that um, the Angela Project was a catalyst to what we're seeing now nationwide. Uh, I believe it was a, a, a primary catalyst of that. Now, you wrote a book based on the Angela Project. The uh, Angela Project um, presents 40 Days of, of Prayer. Um, yeah. you know, as I said in the opener, you uh, also are the, the prayer director at Simmons um, College. You know, this sounds like an awfully pious position. Uh, so what exactly do you do as the prayer director? Oh, it's really not a pious position. <laughs> it's any prayer warrior, any prayer warrior is going to be in the trenches. They're going to be listening. They're going to be listening to uh, the visionary, who is Dr. Cosby. And so the Bible says you have not because you ask not. And so what I do is, as a good listener, I'm, I'm looking up and I'm picking up on the vision that uh, Dr. Cosby has set forth. And I pick up that vision and I... Uh, formulate prayers around that vision and I gather prayer warriors to pray about that vision and again I, I kind of go back to say I believe because um, uh, what we're seeing now is the fruit and the labor of uh, of prayers going going forth and God actually answering those prayers um, you know through his people you'd see the prophet Nehemiah he worked and prayed so, you know, we don't leave it to prayer alone, but we work as well and we work, uh, you know, with all of our might. So, yes, I would say I'm a proud uh, prayer director of Simmons College of Kentucky. 
Um, I also said in the opener that, um, you know, you're the founder of uh, this One Voice Prayer Movement. What exactly is that? One Voice Prayer Movement. Uh, so we are comprised of, of prayer warriors across denominational and uh, racial lines. And so when we were meeting in person before COVID, we were meeting every first Friday of the month at a different host church. And um, our prayers would be focused on the poor and oppressed. And God has narrowed over these 11 years, God has narrowed that focus to specifically justice for the American descendants of slavery. And we do have pastors involved in the prayer movement as well. Um, So, yes, that is what One Voice Prayer Movement has been doing for 11 years. Now, you have a new uh, book. Um, we're recording this in December, but this will come out in January. Uh, the name of the book is Lent of Liberation, Confronting the Legacy of American Slavery. Using the framework of the Lenten season, you plunge readers into the brutal system of chattel slavery. You wrote, acknowledgement of the truth is necessary first step to reconciliation. Complete reconciliation between blacks and whites in America comes when whites become an advocate in the fight against systematic uh, racial injustice and a call for reparations when justice is finally given to the American descendants of slavery. The Linton framework is, is, a, is brilliantly fascinating. Uh, why did you choose this for the book? Um, why did I choose what in particular? Uh, the framework of using Lent uh, for, for oh, the structure oh, of the book. Oh. oh, because Lent is a time of repentance. It is a time of repentance, and I believe this may be the first time that um, that the theme of slavery has been the focus for, for Lent. And so uh, I think the time is now. The time is now um, for, uh, for a, a theme like this to, be, uh, to enter into the churches and the hearts of, uh, of a Christian people. Um, as you, you know, look at, uh, you know, obviously this is a very he- heavy topic um, and, and there's a lot of reason for it, but what, what was the primary inspiration and drive behind the formation of this book? Well, I, you know, I have to go back to the prayer because, like I said, I had been leading uh, into denominational prayer ministry for 11 years and for a very long time, these 11 years, justice has been the cry of our hearts to God. But we know we can't, uh, God doesn't uh, 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 tell us to do, uh, let prayer be uh, an end to itself, but action has to be involved in that. Uh, so God uh, really just put that burden on my heart, and I believe it's just God moving in and through this to, uh, to provide, let this be an avenue, uh, an, one pathway that God would use to bring forth justice. I'm sure there are many others, but this is one pathway that I believe God will use to bring forth justice. Now, this book includes uh, testimonies of those uh, that escaped slavery. Uh, why is it mm-hmm. important to the spiritual formation um, you know, of those reading this to process these historic words that you've put as part of the book? Oh, because of the widespread misnomer about slavery because uh, black history is not taught 
in our public school system. Uh, it's uh, relegated to one uh, month out of the whole year in February, Black History Month. And so uh, blacks and uh, whites and blacks are both ignorant to the, um, to the brutality of slavery. And so uh, to have a firsthand account of what actually what they went through, I think it brings humanity to the enslaved. It brings humanity. They were not uh, a thing to be inspected. They were not um, animals to be auctioned off and sold. So I think it brings humanity to the enslaved. And when you bring humanity to the other, then you're able to, the Lord is able to move to, to bring forth sympathy and empathy that is the necessary catalyst to take the next step to advocate for justice. I know it might be um, tough, but uh, to, to, to pick out one, but what was, uh, what was kind of maybe the one voice from these stories, uh, the one particular voice of a former slave that was most important for you to include in this book? Oh, wow. They were all so important. Um, they were also important. Um, I, I will say this. I don't know that I can, could choose one particular voice, but I can tell you that one particular thing that, uh, that I learned from those who were highlighted as the uh, enslaved in this particular book, and that was that they did not give up. It was that they risked their lives, they risked possible torture for the freedom they did not give up. And so I think that speaks to us that we should not give up either. While this year has opened many people's eyes to the reality of continued racism and inequality in America, there are still so many that just don't get it or see it or mm -hmm. fully understand it. And you wrote, while it it is totally impossible for whites to know the pressure of being black in a world in which whites define normality. And based on that definition, blacks are abnormal in all things and in all ways. It is critical that whites see black suffering and pain as a reality before whites can enter into their pain. You know, for those leading faith communities that are listening to this conversation, what's your advice to them? on leading a reality check among their white congregations? Oh, well, I think that's, and not to be self-promoting, but I think that's one of the benefits of this particular book, The Lent of Liberation. I think the Lent of Liberation book could be used as a tool for white pastors to introduce their congregation to black reality and black pain and to discuss it. Um, at the end of each devotional is a reflective thought, as my pastor would say, a powerful point to ponder. And so um, that's a great way for to, to uh, start discussion and to reflect in their own personal context how they can start the work of racial justice. You know, for a lot of people uh, listening to this, they're, uh, they're passionate about this, they have theological convictions around this, um, and yet 
you know, the struggle for many is, how, how, you know, what does this look like on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis? You know, a lot of people um, wish they could just preach a one-off sermon and everyone within their congregation has uh, a new understanding. So where have you seen, if, um, you know, or uh, effective ways in which people have, um, you know, continued to fight that good fight on a day-to-day basis, on a week-to-week basis? What are the things, effective ways that they were able to implement change within their primarily white congregations? Well, I would lift up to you um, in Powell West here in Louisville, Kentucky, where Dr. Cosby and uh, Dr. Joe Phelps, they're co-leaders co, um, of Empower West, uh, a group of faith-based uh, leaders um, who have taken up the mantle of racial justice work. And was it, it I will not say it was in past tense because it is still ongoing, but is it quick? No. Is it easy? No. But this is a group of pastors who have committed their life now going on, uh, I believe it's about um, six or seven years now, who have committed their life to gathering, to listen. Uh, we started out with the white pastors coming to the table and not speaking, but really there to listen, where uh, Dr. Cosby, it was a series of weeks and weeks and really, it's still going on, really, of, of teaching. Um, so to, to really understand the Black experience. So, um, so I would say that it's going to take some sacrifice. Are you willing to put in the work? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to be quiet? Baptist Seminary of Kentucky offers multiple ways to pursue theological education, helping you learn and grow in your area of ministry. Not only the Master of Divinity degree, but our Pastoral Care Certificate, Rural Ministry Certificate, and Flourish Workshops for lay leaders are offered virtually so that you can study where you are. BSK alumni are serving in many different capacities in and outside the church as ministers, counselors, missionaries, artists, musicians, nonprofit leaders, and many other creative career paths benefiting from theological education. As the official seminary of National Baptist Convention of America International, BSK is committed to working for racial justice. All students are required to take Black and womanist theology as part of a Black church studies thread woven throughout our curriculum. Over 80% of BSK students graduate with little to no additional debt occurred from their seminary experience. Our flexible block schedule approach, the ability to study where you are, and the plentiful scholarship opportunities allow students to focus on training for ministry without the burden of accruing massive debt. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit bsk.edu to learn more about our areas of emphasis or to apply for one of our programs. For many, when they consider uh, slavery, it's it's a vague uh past experience, um, something they've read about in books. And, and yet, you make the argument in the book that through mass incarceration, we are living uh, through a modern day system of slavery. Uh, in fact, in yeah. Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, it's estimated that three out of four young black men and nearly all those who are in the poorest neighborhood can expect to serve time in prison. And similar rates of incarceration can be found in Black communities across America. Um, You wrote, 
either black men in the US are the most innate criminals in world history, or the American system of justice is one of the most inhumane anti-black systems in history. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. Yes, well, I think that um, we see that being evidence being lived out right now, uh, where, where some of the masses of uh, the uh, dominant uh, culture may have been blind to the plights of Black America, have, have really um, discounted the cries of injustices, have discounted the, uh, the cries of police brutality. But then when we had the, um, the George Floyd moment, the George Floyd moment, it, it was used as a catalyst to open up the eyes to the masses and uh, about the black injustices that are targeted specifically against black people. And um, George Floyd at Awaken um, made us aware of, of other, uh, another two cases that we were not even aware of until the George Floyd moment, and that's the Breonna Taylor that had actually happened before George Floyd and the Ahmaud Arbery. But then we also see many other cases of this across the nation, and there's countless others that you and I neither know about, but there are countless others. So I think that, um, and we and we also saw a nation, a nations, nations plural, taking part in observing and seeing the injustices here in America, um, the land of the free. Um, so I think it's I, I think it's evident now. I think it's before us, and I think that this is a moment that we need to uh, take hold of. This is a moment we need to move in. This is not a moment to sweep it sweep it up under the rug again, but this is a moment to build upon. You wrote, white supremacy operates in business suits through decisions made in the boardroom of corporations, through the laws and policies enacted on the Senate and congressional floors, and at the state and local level, and structural and administration of public schools, and at colleges and universities and courtroom, in the halls of justice, and through law enforcement, to name a few. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into... Um, you know, again, the reality for a lot of people who might be listening to this who've never had to deal with systemic racism, um, take us a little deeper into some of these examples that you've provided in the book. Okay. Well, I think, again, this moment has brought to light the disparities uh, specifically uh, for uh, Blacks in America. There's health disparities. We see that with COVID. That has brought that, brought that to light. This is, a, a, this is a time, I think, the Lord is using this uh, devastation that has happened uh, in our nation and across the nation to, to shine a light on the disparities of the poor and oppressed, specifically uh, for the American descendants of slavery, Blacks. And we see that with COVID. We see that in the education system, whereby uh, a tuition, an average of $50,000, well, that shuts out, that shuts out Black people. Uh, that shuts them out from education. So um, there's a whole, a whole padre of, of justice corrections that need to take place in order to repair the American descendants of slavery. Uh, yes. 
You know, another powerful uh, quote from the book um, is when you, you start to talk about prayer, of course, that's the whole purpose of the book. You're inviting people uh, into prayer, into contemplation, um, uh, into confession, into repentance. Um, and you wrote, prayer for deliverance has gone unheard for Black Americans. In fact, a true student of history might argue that God answers the prayers of white racists. If the transactional view of prayer is truly what prayer is all about, then we who are Christian should also be atheists because of the transaction of God does not exist. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there into that thought. Well, if you look at uh, American history, look at the history of slavery um, that went on for, uh, well, uh, 200 and some odd years um, that we're still in, in uh, being oppressed 401 years later, that uh, we have been in prayer, uh, the black community have been crying out to God for that. So if you're, if you're, uh, if the belief is that God uh, is a transactional God, then why are we not delivered now? Why are we not delivered? But if you, there is a biblical perspective on this as well, looking at um, Moses in the Exodus, um, God heard the cries. The scripture says that God looked, he heard the cries and saw the cruel treatment of his people and that he came down. He said, I'm coming down to rescue them, but I'm sending you, Moses. So this was like 400 years of oppression. So the people of God have been crying out for 400 years. So this is not um, this is not um, just relegated to the blacks today, but to it's biblical that there's something about God that shows up in struggle. So His glory is shown greater in the in the in struggle, and uh, I would commit to you that the people of the African-American community, community have come to know the God of salvation who delivers from oppression, who delivers in the courtroom, who delivers in the sick room. They've come to know him through a greater way, through oppression. You pose this question in the book. Is it possible that whites uh, subconsciously know they have advantage and are quite quiet about racial injustice for the fear that they may lose them. Can you answer that question for us and kind of help iron out what that reality looks like? Well, I think that I don't, excuse me, I think that I don't necessarily want to answer that question. I think that that is a question for our readers to answer. Um, but I will say this, that um, in the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Ibram Kendi, he says that there is the racist who is a blatant racist. You know that they're racist. Then there is the not a racist, and that's the person who, say, who says that I don't see color. But then there's the anti-racist who works actively against racism. And um, so if you don't see color, then you don't see racism. 
then you're relegated to doing nothing. And so, in other words, the racist and the not racist, they're in the same boat as far as uh, producing a racist society. You know, you were just exploring some of the ways that uh, individuals can use this, but how do you imagine churches using this book specifically during the Lenten season? Well, I believe that uh, churches could use it um, uh, in their Sunday school classes. Um, pastors could use it to introduce the, to their church uh, the focus of, of uh, race and the work of racial justice. Um, I think it could be used in any kind of um, any kind of ministry or, or small groups in the church that normally gather that uh, could use this to to help build uh, build uh, a mechanism whereby they could uh, do racial justice work together and hold one another accountable. You know. Um... When you write a book, you're you're pouring your um, blood, sweat, and tears into it. Um, you know, so it might be hard to encapsulate in a statement. You know, what your hope is for your readers, but what is your hope for this book? Um, my hope for the book that it will bring truth. It will shine the light of truth about the institution of slavery, that it was barbaric and brutal, um, that it would bring up humanity to the enslaved. The enslaved blacks, they were someone's grandmother, grandfather, mother, sister, brother. The enslaved child was someone's child. They were made in God, God's image. And again, they were not property to be inspected or animals to be auctioned off. And it's only when we see the other as our brother or our sister that we're able to empathize and we're able to be compelled to take the next step to racial justice. Well, if you want to stay connected with Sherry, you can follow her on social media. Um, go check uh, One Voice Movement um, at makethemone.org. Of course, uh, go out and purchase Lent of Liberation wherever books are sold. Sherry, thank you for leading us to uh, continue to open our eyes and our ears to the struggles of our neighbors, turning us to confession and repentance that we might be a part of transforming God's world. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. 
Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cvf.net backslash podcast support.